Listen, uh, you don't have to make conversation with me. Nothing personal, but I'm not in the habit of talking with bartenders. I understand. One's trying to move into my neighborhood. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. Amy, we throw around the phrase, very special episode, pretty liberally around here. But this time, we really have a special episode. What are we talking about tonight? We have an ultra very special episode for you tonight. This is the first in our series that will come on the decades of our show episodes. So episode 10, 20, 30, so on. We are going to do a deep dive into the will they, won't they stories that have captured our hearts and minds since the early 80s. We're talking Sam and Diane, Ross and Rachel, Ham and Jim and Nick and Jess. Nick and Jess. Yeah. Will they, won't they romances in five acts is the concept, right? We basically figured, you know, if the format of our podcast is that we talk about a trope across a handful of episodes, we don't want to blow the treasure trove that is your Ross and Rachel's, your Jim and Pam's, your Sam and Diane. You know, we don't want to talk about each one of them for 20 minutes and then call it a day. So yeah, every 10 episodes, we're going to do sort of the the mini tropes that make up the mega trope that is these classic will they, won't they romances. So we're going to kind of feel it out as we go. We don't have a totally concrete master plan, but the thinking is... Act one, which is what we're going to talk about tonight, is the characters, in some cases, meeting each other. At the very least, it's us, the audience, meeting them. So it's the sort of introduction. And then uh, we would sort of break it down. I don't know. Act two is maybe when their feelings come out in the open, maybe a first kiss, right? Something like that. Something along those lines. Look, the the deal with the will they, won't they trope is that... You stretch it out for as long as you can because that's your show. In doing research for this, James Burroughs, legendary sitcom director of Cheers, Taxi, and many, many others, he, uh, during the filming of the, of the pilot episode of Cheers, said to the, the writers, the, the Charles brothers, Sam and Diane, that's your show. It, even in their auditions, they auditioned as couples, um, Ted Danson and Shelley Long, and they were looking for that chemistry because they knew that's what they were aiming for. And then later on, when, as we know, Diane does eventually leave the show at the end of season five, Jimmy Burroughs credits Diane, or sorry, yeah, Diane, Shelley Long, leaving the show as the thing that saved Cheers from cancellation because 
after a time, they either got to get together or not, and we got to move on. Um, but so many of these shows really have that as their anchor, the will they, won't they. It gets people interested. It hooks them in. And all of these shows that we're going to talk about, I think, ran for a, what, a minimum of, of what New Girl was the shortest one. It ran for seven or eight seasons, right? Yeah. In talking about the introductions to these will they, won't they romances, we're also going to be talking about the pilot episodes of several of the most significant sitcoms of all time. That's right. Because like you said, they're, these stories are at the heart of the shows. And so what we're going to kick off with today is the equivalent of a romantic comedy meet cute. How are these characters lives thrust together in the ways that make us want to keep watching and make us interested. And then we'll take apart the pieces of those relationships as they continue. And as Jay said, we're, we're aiming to do this in five acts. So, you know, we're definitely going to have some type of first kiss. We'll have some sort of like first breakup or some, you know, right. there's the obstacle, yeah, there's some the obstacle engagement to the other person. Uh, yeah, there's that major obstacle, usually a competing lover that then has to remove, has to be removed. Right. So exactly. The and then finally, the will they or they won't they. Many of these um, relationships have multiple up and downs, like Sam and Diane in particular, they will they and won't they every season multiple times. Yeah. So there's lots to dig into here. And I think the greatest thing is that we just get to enjoy some really wonderful story arcs of really good television. Yeah. So we're watching the pilot episodes of all of those shows. So uh, normally I ask you about your sort of personal experience with this trope and, uh, you know, how that Jay, plays out in real have life. have you experienced a will-they-won't-they they situation? Well, here's the thing. To an extent... Every relationship is a will they or won't they at least a little bit, right? Because you always begin not knowing if you will or you won't. A little uh, unsure. Will she say yes? Yeah. What I would say uh, in all seriousness is that I think in real life, I have found the situations where there is some sort of simmering thing and somebody is pining for the other person over a period of years don't usually work out that well. And right. it tends to be that uh, the relationships that begin meeting somebody where there is a sort of clear intentionality and there isn't necessarily years of drama, that tends to be better in real life, I have found. And I would agree with that. And I think that just comes to the the point of prolonged drama in one's life is unhealthy. It's yeah. it's if you were Ross and Rachel and you were living in within this group of friends like you're Rachel living with her ex-boyfriend or guy that she's really into's sister, like what a complicated situation. You guys are hanging out all the time. It's not fun. The only time this really ever happens maybe is in high school. So Setting aside the real-life element of this, I remember when I was younger watching various sitcoms and sort of forming the opinion that I didn't like it when the fundamental setup of the characters 
changed. In other words, if you had a show that was about a bunch of single people trying to find love in this crazy world, I wanted it to stay about single people. I didn't want to have something where two and a half seasons in, these two got together and the whole show turned into some lovey-dovey thing about a married couple instead of what it started as. I'm not sure how I feel about that now, but what do you think of that? This idea of changing the dynamic fundamentally when you have characters get together and become a couple. I think th what you're speaking to is my exact frustration. And even though I love How I Met Your Mother, that is a, that's the reason we didn't choose Ted and Robin. It's a frustration, you know, Ted and Robin, or is it Robin and Barney? And, oh, wait, we've got, we finally found the mother. And then, oh, Ted and, or Robin and Barney are getting married and that's great. And then just kidding, we're going to switch things all around and switch it up in that last season. That to me... That last season just felt really, of, of How I Met Your Mother, felt really disjointed because of that. And there were definitely, particularly going back now, when we rewatched How I Met Your Mother and we were not necessarily binging it, but like watching an episode a week or a couple episodes a week, it just felt like everything was moving too fast and things just kept changing. And it was like, who's together now? Who, what is happening? Like, what do we care about? You know, how many kids do, do Lily and Marshall have? And I think the whole heart of that show was that they were young people in their, you know, late 20s, early 30s, and then, you know, going into their 30s that were that were hanging out at this bar and trying to, you know, have. And then when it when they got older and when they were moving on, as they should, yeah. because they're maturing and good, you know, good for them, that was no longer the show. And there just wasn't anything to see anymore. Yeah. And one is not better than the other, but it's the difference between watching something about people trying to figure out what their lives are going to be versus watching people whose lives are established and you're watching them navigate it. So like Martin, for example, was a great show where there's no will they or won't they, they did. They're and together. here they are. They're and married. You're watching them navigate that. Or and, they were dating. Yeah. yeah. And all the many, many shows and movies about couples and families and whatnot. But yeah, I kind of agree. If you're selling me a show about young people trying to figure out where they're going and who they're going to be, then that's part of the character of the show. And it's weird when it changes. So, okay, let's, let's get into it. Let's talk about the very first episode of Cheers. The very first episode of Cheers, episode one, season one, Give me a ring sometime. We are introduced to all of our, well, most of our most beloved friends from Cheers, because obviously this is before um, Kirstie Alley and Woody Harrelson come Hopefully on board. Before Woody, but was Frasier in this? Frasier comes in later in this season as right. one of the complications to Sam and Diane. That's sure. the other character that you're mm -hmm. talking about. Frasier is introduced later on as a love interest for Diane. Um, so that is one that we'll talk about in future yeah. episodes of our uh, very special series. Sure. Yeah, I want to hold on this very first scene of Cheers for a second because it- The cold it, open? Yeah, there's a couple. So the cold open is a minute or more of Ted Danson as Sam just walking into Cheers and turning on the lights and taking down the chairs. It reminded me of a play. It's just like when you see a little play in a small black box theater and you've got those first couple minutes where no one's even talking. It's usually some 
guy on the stage doing something and the audience is sort of laughing nervously because they don't quite know what to make of it. It's just so patient and pleasant and you get this little one-off scene of a teenager coming in and trying to use a fake ID. And it's not even that funny, but it just establishes this sort of easygoing, cozy tone. And it absolutely establishes the easygoing nature of Sam, the bartender. And, and it's just so great. Yeah. The first thing that happens and it, you know, I'm a huge fan of Cheers. My family watched it all the time. I saw it in a ton of reruns. And then as I got older, I was able to stay up that late and watch it with my parents. Loved that show. One of the little sweet things that happened there. So Sam doesn't come in through the front door. He comes in from the back. He's been there. He owns the place, right? So he comes in from the back room, flicks the lights on, like you're saying, and immediately goes to the coffee cups because, you know, as we know, he's a recovering alcoholic. And then, yeah, the kid comes in. Now, the the sweet thing about all of this is that when in the final episode, when Cheers is closed and, and like he's heading out, he doesn't head out the front door. He's heading to that same back room. So his first entrance and his last exit are through that same space. And that's just sort of a little sweet thing that happens in the lore of Cheers. But yeah, the kid comes in and he's, like you're saying, very laid back and, you know, kind of he's not like get out of here kid blah, blah, blah. no grumpiness he just is engaging with him just trying to let the kid giving it giving him enough rope to hang himself as we you know as they say um and then but no none of the other main characters are there there's no one else no, in the bar it's yeah. just sam and this kid and as the kid is leaving in the cold open we get diane and uh her fiance sumner something mm-hmm. sumner sloan or whatever yeah. walking in yeah And so this first scene with Diane alone in the bar answering the phone is truly masterful, I think. So what happens is Sam leaves her in there by herself. The phone is ringing in the bar. Right. right? So this happens after the credits. So Diane and her fiance come in. She's his teaching assistant. He's a professor and she's his teaching assistant. All of this is established in their little conversation. They're about to go off and get married. They're going to hop a flight to Bermuda. And um, he just has to run this one errand. He's got to go get his grandmother's wedding ring off of his ex-wife's finger and he'll just leave her at the bar and run you know pop over to the you know the house go get the go get the ring and be right back and off they go and so he leaves and she's there in the bar and the phone rings while Sam has you know stepped out to go and you know he's heard all of this he sees what's going on yeah. he steps out and the phone rings and she goes to answer the phone. Yeah, she, you know, lets it ring three or four times. It's clear that Sam's not coming back to answer it. It bugs her that no one's answering the phone. So she answers it. It turns out to be a woman looking for Sam. He comes back in and is sort of miming to her. Tell her I'm not here. Tell her I ran away. And she she has a problem with that. But she eventually sort of goes along with it. This is why the scene is so great. And it, it's a little bit of a tangent for me to say this, but if you remember the way Peter Venkman is introduced in Ghostbusters, right? It's that scene of Bill Murray doing the ESP tests with the young man and woman students, and he's showing them the cards and giving them electric shocks 
if they say the wrong answer, you know, it's trying to see if they're psychic. And the joke is that the schlubby guy, he just keeps shocking no matter what, even if he gets the right answer. And the woman, he he keeps smiling at her and, and lets her through. And I always thought of that scene as such a perfect example of show, don't tell, get across who the character is, uh, what his relationship is to his work, what his work is, how he relates to people, what his whole personality and attitude is. You get all of that in this really fun, organic way that's actually part of the story. And when we're watching that scene of the phone ringing and Shelley Long answering it, I just I thought the same thing. It's like you're you're getting to see everything about these two characters. You're getting to see how she works and how she's the kind of person that can't stand to have a phone ringing and not be answered and she can't stand to be dishonest to the person that she's talking to. And then you get Sam coming in and everything that he's doing lets you see how his mind works and what his character is. And then in turn, the way she reacts to what he's asking her to do and how she makes a joke about, you know, he's doing all these crazy hand movements. And she's like, uh, I think he went to mime class, like just everything about it tells you everything you need to know about who they are and what their relationship is going to be without any lame exposition. Exactly. The the phrase that the woman on the phone says to Diane, which comes back later in the episode, is that tell him he's a magnificent pagan beast. And later on in the episode, Sam calls that back and is like, because you've been thinking about that uh, phrase, magnificent pagan beast, since she said it, like he is this observer of human characteristics. And he reads her and reads that fiance from jump and is just in the same way that he was enjoying himself giving that kid all the time he that teenager who was trying to pull a fast one all the space and time he needed to trip himself up he is kind of doing the same thing with diane and she's giving it back as good as he's as he's giving it and so you kind of you know because he's like oh just you know tell her no 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 i'm not here you know but miming it and then she's making fun of him like oh he needs he needs he needs mime class you know and and so it just they have that tit for tat sort of established right from there he's established as a as a ladies man she's established as sort of high maintenance and doesn't like the fact that he's this you know likes to sow his wild oats and whatnot we only get a bit of exposition later on when the other characters come in, when Coach and yeah. and Carla and the rest of them come in, and that's when we find out about Sam as a baseball, an ex baseball player, and Coach is like, "Oh, I coached him in the minors," and Carla's like, "Oh yeah, did you know Sammy struck out this one and this one and this one?" And so we just get a little bit of exposition there, but exactly their dynamic is com- is done in one in that mime scene and you know. Yeah, it's perfect. Now, since you mentioned the word beast, uh, (laughs) Ted Danson's chest hair is intimidating. Uh, They have him have his shirt a bit open. A bit open. It is. It's not even, but that's why it's intimidating because it's only like, you know. It doesn't need much. It's the second button. And it's like in a fully buttoned tuxedo and it would still be coming out there. There is, yeah, it's a lot. But you like that. We've already established your, your 
uh, baritude. What? Oh, <laughs> no, I, I don't know if that translates to chest hair. I think I'm neutral at best on that. I talk all the time about these nebbishy sort of nice guy leading men of the 90s. We haven't quite gotten there yet. So you can see that Ted Danson is part of that sort of barrel-chested, chisel-jawed, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say he's he's a tough guy per se, but he is definitely an old school leading man, much more than we're going to get in the, you know, in the years to come. Right. And so what ends up happening because we have this dynamic between Sam and Diane is that although Ted Danson is, you know, can and is, you know, can be and is quite goofy and can, you know, great comedy shops and all this other stuff in terms of like physical comedy and and cracking jokes and stuff. She's the squirrely one, right? She's the anxious one and the and the frenetic one. She and so in this dynamic, he becomes the straight man. And it's so lovely because it's the perfect thing as a bartender to be. How often as a bartender are you just kind of sitting and listening? Yeah. You don't have to say much and, you know, because you're slinging the drink. So people want to talk to you or they just want someone to talk to. And so he really is able to lean into that with this kind of, you know, everything sort of comes easy when I when I'm just here. I don't have to try hard to get women. <laughs> yeah. No, he's very much in his element. And like you said, he is absolutely an astute observer of the human condition. So let's talk about what he's observing, because uh, Shelley Long's character has this in common with every one of our ladies we're going to talk about tonight, right? She's involved with an asshole, uh, and she's coming off of some sort of uh, shitty situation. And in this case, this guy, Sumner, there's this Michael Showalter movie called The Baxter that is all about that character. Every romantic comedy has to have the guy that's wrong for her. You know, Greg Kinnear in You've Got Mail and Bill Pullman in Sleepless in Seattle. And James it, Marsden in The Notebook. Sure. And it's a tricky thing because if that incumbent lover at the beginning is too much of a schmuck, in my opinion, you start to lose sympathy for that woman character right. because you're like, why is she with him? And this is something that I think has changed in the intervening years since this came out is we talked about it a little bit on The Simpsons. The guys that seemed like kind of an asshole in the 80s and 90s now seem like really an asshole. And right. so I'm sure this Sumner character was never <laughs> intended to come across as a good guy. But watching it now, you're just like, what the hell? Yeah, there's no surprise at all when Sam's prediction of when the second for the second time this Sumner character leaves Diane at the bar to go meet up with his ex-wife to get this ring back. So he says he's got to do it. He goes. He's gone for like two hours. Diane meets everybody in the bar. He comes back, has been unsuccessful in getting the ring, but is now questioning everything about his former relationship with his ex-wife and his relationship now. And he's like, maybe we shouldn't go. And then the phone in the bar rings and it's his ex-wife. And she says, I've had a change of heart. I will give you the ring. Just come back over. And he runs off to go do that. And within a few minutes, 
Sam says to Diane, he's on a plane with his ex-wife. Yeah. This guy at some point says to her, you're a beautiful child, right? That's a direct quote I wrote down. He's a condescending asshole. She is obviously a trophy wife, right? He's older than her. He's He's some intellectual muckety-muck. I mean, look, these are the power dynamics of their relationship. This is the reason that all of these like professor-student, professor-TA relationships, despite the fact that they, you know, you can be said that they have an intellectual curiosity that parallels, but maybe the age is not the same. It's the power dynamics of that type of relationship that make it tricky in the first place. Because what happens to Diane in this episode, when that relationship falls apart, is now she not only has lost her boyfriend and the guy that she's been TAing for for the last two years that she says in her own words, she's dedicated her life to him and his work over the last two years. She's also now lost her job. Yeah. And she has no usable skills. Right. Because she's a student of, you know, literature. They're talking about Yates and Dawn and all this other stuff. So, you know, she's she's a student, she's an intellectual, and now she has no more anchor in her career path, nor does she have an anchor in her love life. She's left you know, to keep on with those boat metaphors, rudderless. What is she going to do? Yeah. And she kind of reveals her fatal flaw when explaining why she's with this guy or trying to stand up for him. And she basically sort of lists his accolades. You know, she's with him because she respects him and admires his accomplishments. And his mind. Yes. She's not with him because of any connection they have or because he's good to her or respects her or anything like that. And so there's a shallowness on her part, too, that has resulted in this predicament. There's a shallowness on her part, yes. And also, I think back to the sexual politics of the time and even that you know persists today, straight men have to do the bare minimum and can still be in loving relationships with their wives, at least one-sided, right? And that that is like the eternal frustration of feminism is that, you know, as a straight woman, we want to find love, yet here are our very mediocre options. Yeah. And to demand the things that you want in a relationship is to then become a shrew or a bitch or, you know, one or the other of all of these other tropes. And we see that play out in Sam and Diane's dynamic as well, because yes, she has this frenetic energy and yes, she can be, you know, demanding and exacting. But the way Sam engages with her is very similar. He, you know, as time goes on, we see him kind of making fun of the things that she cares about and making fun of her judgment calls and all of these things. And it's like, Yes, a little bit of shallowness on on her part. And also the alternative is you're a shrew, you're alone, you're a bitch. Yeah. And so we do find that she has a very good memory. And she turns out to have this sort of detail-oriented mind that when Carla yells this comically long and complicated order to Sam... You know, saying, I need three flippers and two Jack, two Jim Beams and a double shot or whatever, you know, going and going and going. Uh, And then a moment later, when Sam says, oh, remind me what you needed, Diane 
can remember the whole order. That's the very end of the episode. They've had this whole kind of flirty thing happening from Jump, Diane, every time Sumner is leaving her there, there's some other, you know, engagement with different patrons and and different things. And she asks Sam not to tell everybody what's going on with her personal life because he happened to witness it, but not everyone in the bar needs to know. And then, of course, everyone's curious the minute she leaves the room and Sam tries to honor her wishes, but is like, you know, they all think she's a hooker. Fun fact, she uh, just two months earlier played a hooker in the movie Night Shift starring Henry Winkler. She comes back from the bathroom and everyone's like giving her an ar- a round of applause because Sam has said, oh, she's just waiting here for her fiance. She's, you know, she's engaged and about to go get married. And he didn't say everything else, all the deep things that he was recognizing that she herself, and this is, to me, this is, it's not that she has a good memory. That's the thing that lets us know that she has a redeeming characteristic. It's that she is intelligent and she knows what's happening and she knows that she's fooling herself. And the reason she's staying at the bar and engaging in these conversations and not just being like, I'm peacing out, like, screw this guy. I'll see him at work. What if he comes back, whatever, like I have some self-respect is that she's kind of enjoying this tit for tat with Sam, but she does, you know, in her way know what's happening and you can see it in her eyes and so she doesn't want to be told it so they get in this fight when sam says to her he's probably on the plane with his or he you know he you know he's already on the plane with his ex-wife and then she calls you know she gets upset and she's like you know that was a cruel thing to say you shouldn't have said it that way and he shouldn't have and he knew it she calls to change the reservation and finds out that he's right and then she sort of sits down and she's like oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And has the realization that not only is her love gone, her job is gone. And what is she to do? And he's like, well, you could work here. And she goes on a rant about what would make him think that an intellectual like her would ever be a waitress. And so she puts down his whole profession. And the end and the culmination of that rant is that as she's walking out of the bar, I will find something that I am good at. And it will come upon me because I'm going out there in the world and I'm going to be helpful and honest and earnest and all of these like, you know, good things. And <laughs> and then that moment with Carla happens and, you know, Ted Danson's character is like, wait, what was that again, Carla? And she turns around and repeats the whole thing. And as she's doing it, it dawns on her that the thing that she's right for is this which is in opposition to this whole rant that she's just given and also exactly what she said would happen, that something would fall in her lap if she goes out there and is an earnest, good person. And she realizes it. And you can see they have the camera going go back and forth between the two of them and both of them, like their their faces and the chemistry between them is fabulous, right? Their faces, the acting is mirroring these realizations. Like it's dawning on them as this is happening. Yeah. And so you have the setup for a sitcom, you know, this very clear straightforward fish out of water scenario we've seen at this point how not only is she a foil to sam she's a foil to everybody right carla especially is like her total antithesis but the whole character of the bar in general is 
just completely alien to her. And yeah, if you were sitting there in 82 when this came out, you'd probably, you would know what you were in for and probably be on board for Cheers. Yeah, it was not a super highly rated show at the beginning. It did take some time. And um, once it got into syndication, it built a lot more of an audience and more and more people started watching it. But the thing that I, I think is brilliant about this episode, and you can just, you can tell that, the Charles brothers and James Burroughs are seasoned pros in terms of sitcomery because they really know how to bookend a- an episode. We get that great cold open with the kid who's like a random patron that we're never going to see again. And the end, the last, you know, not after the credits, but after like the climax culmination is Diane at the bar the next day, new outfit, first day of work, the niece socks are on point part of her characterization is like the -the over-the-top fashion that she's sort of always like very extra with her colors and her you know the hair done very big and the pearls and everything because she's going to still be this intellectual and she has her first patron and she goes on and on and on this whole life story sits down with them while she's trying to take their order and tells them everything about why she's there and why it's the right life choice and why it's, you know, all the merits of doing what she's doing. And then they're like, they open a phrase book and with a German accent say, uh, we are, we were robbed. Where is police station? Yeah. And it's this fun little comic strip moment, just like the way we started. And uh, it's all really well done. And it's clear that this relationship, this Sam and Diane, will they, won't they, is obviously fundamentally part of the DNA of the show. We meet that relationship and that couple before anybody else, and we're off to the races. Shall we move on to Friends? Friends, the birth of the thing that became Ross and Rachel. Who knew that Friends was a series about six children uh, making their way in New York? Because that's what it feels like when you go back to the very first episode. They are so young, those floppy-headed youngsters. That theme sequence is totally different because they don't have any of the clips in it yet. It's all just that photo shoot of them splashing around in the Central Park water fountain. Uh, Yeah, this is what happens when you go back to the very beginning of one of these super long-running shows. Uh, where the people, super young. yeah, and where the people have remained in the public eye and mm. are still very much like you know we've aged with them. This sure. show started in 1994. This was, um, I think, September 1994, and highly anticipated. I mean, there were like Jennifer Aniston was let out of another contract because well, this show was going to be such a hit. okay. Let's talk about Jennifer Aniston for a second because at this point in time. When this show came out, I was already familiar with her as that hot girl that keeps showing up in shows that get canceled. Right. You know, (laughs) she was in Leprechaun, the movie, a little bit before this. And she was in a show called Malloy with Mayim Bialik before uh, she went on to do Blossom. And 
three or four other shows. She was the sister in Ferris Bueller, the Ferris Bueller TV show. Yeah, she was a she was a, a girlfriend had an arc, uh, maybe one or two episodes in uh, Herman's head, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was like right before this. Yeah. And she was yeah, she was slated to be in another pilot that was likely to go to series and they weren't even going to let her audition for Friends because she was already committed to this other project that was with CBS and then at the last you know, at the last hour that got scrapped and then she was able to go on audition and a similar thing happened to um, Matthew Perry. Yeah. Yeah. I read Matthew Perry's memoirs recently. uh, So I literally know his life story. I can chime in about certain things, but yeah, he was set up for another show, but Aniston was just obviously somebody somewhere was like, this girl's got it. We just have to, you know, we've got to find the right thing for her. They well, did as not the give kids, up. I would say, as the kids would say now, she's a Nepo baby. Her dad is John Aniston, a famous um, soap opera actor. But you really see it. Recently, she did that. Uh, they tried those what was it called? In front of a live studio audience, like reads of these classic sitcoms. And I remember just really noticing how she was taking this very dated writing and just really bringing it to life. And she has a lot of ideas about how she's going to say something. She's a really great comic actor. I all know that that was all necessarily in place back in the 90s when this was first starting. But yeah. So and at the time, back in 1994, David Schwimmer and Courtney Cox were the ones that were known. Uh, in fact, all of the reviews from, you know, if you go back to that first week and you look at reviews that were written, everyone was praising David Schwimmer's acting. Now, as we know, Ross and his whole character has not aged well. And, and you know, well, everyone's... Let's, let's talk about <laughs> People Ross. love to hate Ross uh, for many reasons. But yeah, he, he received a lot of praise at the beginning. Yeah, he was definitely positioned as the main guy on the show. It's interesting how the show is about six people equally, and yet it's also primarily about Ross and Rachel. And I was thinking about this since we watched it, how it's so clear from this first episode that their romance is going to be a key or even the key narrative thread of the show, which got me thinking, well, wouldn't it be a bummer then to be one of these other four characters because you're supposed to be equal, but their relationship is so important. But then I kind of realized, you know, it's like the X-Files where you would have some episodes would be Mulder's overarching conspiracies, and then you have the Monsters of the Week episodes, and those are just as important. So these other characters, they have the freedom to have relationships that can come and go and not be part of this grand narrative. And that's actually just as fun or more fun in some cases. And so really, everyone kind of has their part to play. It, it allows the writers and the audience to get a break from what would be a relationship drama. And you don't want and the same thing with Cheers, right? You had all these other wacky characters in the bar that were also main characters that you could then, you know, oh, we can have an episode about Carla and her family. We can have an episode about Norm and him painting or, you know, whatever it is. Like there's other and there's and there's multiples of those. So so you can have just a very small story mm-hmm. and have it take place like in the Friends episode that we watched for Doppelgangers where it was just, you know, that Doppelganger bit with the Ross and Russ 
was just a very little part of it mm-hmm. because there were so many other things going on. Joey was getting, you know, fired and then getting the big audition for All My Children and all of those things. Yeah. And so it's interesting how you see right from the get-go, especially with the male characters, their roles are so clearly defined. And one thing that Matthew Perry talks about in his book was how Joey, at first, Matt LeBlanc couldn't quite find his way with that because all they really had was that he's the hot guy and he's the horny guy. And you see that in this episode. And he discovered over the course of that first season, he needs to be a puppy dog. You know, he needs to be a little bit of a himbo and have that lovable dopiness that makes him not a creep. Because frankly, in this episode, he is kind of a creep. But those three guys, it's like Ross is the heart. Joey is the bod and Chandler is a barrel of laughs. And it's just so clear, like, those are our three guys. Those are our three roles. Go. Yeah, go, launch from there. I think um, one of the things that I was, when I was looking at this, it said that Joey, Matt LeBlanc, had a 102 degree fever when he was filming this first episode. And so he was just taking Tylenol and doing all the things that he could to try to get through this episode. Yeah. But <laughs> so I feel for him. In terms of Ross himself, you know, if we're tracking this evolution of the sort of barrel chested tough guy leading man through the Woody Allen, Billy Crystal days into these more 90s and 2000s sensitive characters. Ross definitely fits with that, but he is his own flavor. Right. So he is what would have been considered, I think at the time, a nice guy in 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 without the quotation marks and now he's what is considered a nice guy with those quotation marks in that he is always thinking that he's smarter than judging, looking down upon women. And, you know, it's their fault, not his fault that they're not with him. And he's always the one, you know, getting left behind and left here. And, you know, he's the joke of the show. He's been divorced so many times and he's so unlucky in love at, with never doing any type of like self-reflection on, yeah. dude, the reason you're unlucky in love is that you're a dick. By the way, they were on a break. We haven't gotten to a lot of that yet, but what we get in this first episode is he's the mopiest mofo in town. He's just a total sad sack. You meet him and he's just like slumps into the coffee shop and collapses onto the couch and... The whole thing is just like he's just a mess. Well, I mean, it is reasonable. His wife moved out that day. I think anybody, you know, yes, that's the moment you get to, you know, anybody gets a pass for being sad and a sad sack on the day that your wife moved out. Sure. I'm not saying he shouldn't be sad, but the way that he's presented is just that that's our first taste of this character is that kind of hi everybody you know just that super sleepy uh pathetic sort of personality (laughs) well and then i think again we get another episode where the beginning of these stories are breakups and in this case they're both uh, going through a breakup right rachel 
walks in in a wedding dress having just run away from her wedding and the only friend that she sort of still has in the city is monica a friend of hers from high school that she hasn't talked to because they've lost touch that's why she wasn't invited to the wedding but she goes to seek her out because that's the like the only other person that she feels like she could be with in this time right so we've got this sort of hodgepodge of characters where some are currently friends that we're just dropping in on in the middle of their, you know, ongoing relationship. And then we have some people reconnecting after a long time. Yeah. And that's a continuity thing in the universe of friends, because Rachel in this episode is introduced to Chandler as though she's never met him before. Like he's one of the group of Courtney Cox's New York friends that she doesn't know. And of course, we find out much later. Right. They're in flashbacks together. In flashbacks together. They even made out at a party one time when the, you know, Chandler and and Ross were in college and the girls were still in high school or, you know, as when they were younger and they've been a little bit older. But so she knows him, but that's not established yet in the universe of friends in this episode. So she's introduced to him as though she's never met him before. But we do know that she knows Ross because he's her old friend's older brother. Right. Rachel has a lot in common with Diane from Cheers, right? They're both trophy wives of these rich schmucks that when when their relationship blows up, They don't have any usable skills and they end up in the service industry. I guess my question is, is this relatable, right? Obviously, there are people out there that that have this predicament. But I'm just thinking from Ross's point of view, there's a girl you were always hung up on in high school and she comes back to town and now, you know, you're going to try to win her over. Very down the middle, relatable thing that lots of people can relate to. Is it this universal thing that so you're a trophy wife and your husband leaves you and now you have to get a job? I guess what I'm asking is, is is this another thing that's born out of this male ego thing and we're not considering the female character's point of view as much? Or is it just like, yeah, the the gold diggers need someone to relate to, too? You know, I don't know. I think it's a little bit of both, right? The trope itself of that, you know, that arc of your backstory, the same way you're describing, you know, Diane and Rachel. Yes, like that is born out of, you know, a sort of a male fantasy of who's going to drop into my life. Oh, it could be this, you know, this girl, she's a princess. And uh, now she's going to try and figure things out on her own. And now we can have this whole back and forth, but I'm still going to be able to rescue her, right? Like that's, that absolutely comes from a, a male point of view. However, because she is, you know, very quickly like becomes one of the girls and then her story is, do I work? Oh my God, I'm going to cut up my dad's credit cards. I'm going to try and like get, you know, leave my family behind. I'm, I'm going to turn over this new leaf. Now we know Rachel throughout the series, she, you know, she can be shallow. She absolutely, you know, was brought up with privilege a hundred percent. Jennifer Aniston's Rachel takes a turn so that she becomes more relatable. But the backstory, absolutely not. Same as the backstory with Diane, though. She's not relatable, really. She's just, you know, kind of a harried oh, woman who's sure. been plopped in the lap of this, you know, man who is to be the lead of the show. And what does it mean that Ross's attraction to her stems from high school. What do we think of that origin? Is it supposed to be that his his crush from high school just still looms so large? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that she's loomed large for all this time, right? So there there definitely is that thing after a breakup 
when people found out that my marriage was over, I got DMs from guys I knew in high school that I was like, what? They were coming out of the woodwork. Like, I don't know you. Why are you private messaging me? Like, yeah, it was so creepy. But in this case, he's not trying to take advantage of that. And she's not coming back into his life because of that breakup. He's just around again when Jennifer Aniston is with Monica, you know, and coming. And so he, and so I think it's just one of these opportunities. And you notice they don't really even touch on it till the very end of the episode. And it's kind of that awkward conversation like, hey, you know, I, used to kind of have a crush well, let's on talk you about that because i was a little surprised even though i've seen this first episode of friends a handful of times over the years i was surprised that that happens that he had the chutzpah to say that and then to go on to say hey why don't we go out sometime and she says yes now but then he doesn't ask her and that's what sets up the whole rest of this, you know, first season is that she like he gets up the nerve to say, I used to like you. And then, hey, maybe we should go out sometime. And he gets up that nerve because of the Joey speech when they were setting up furniture yeah. it, earlier in the episode. Joey has this whole speech about how he needs to, you know, grab a spoon and he like, you know, you want to get this ice cream or whatever and try all different flavors of ice cream because you've been sitting with the one ice cream or something like that. So, you know, go get a spoon, get out there um, and just sort of, you know, is encouraging him to play the field a little bit because, you know, when you've had your heart broken, you got to get your confidence back. And that that's true no matter who you are. Like you you need to get your mojo back. So so go for it. And that is what's, you know, on Ross's mind, so much so that Rachel goes to bed, Monica comes back out, and as he's walking out the door, he's got a big grin on his face, and Monica says, what are you grinning about? And he goes, I grabbed a spoon. Yeah. Yeah. And it is victorious, and you feel that. Victorious, except for he didn't actually do the thing of asking her out, which you see on her face. She's like waiting for it, and then he doesn't. And she's like, okay. That's very interesting. I didn't take it like that. And I'm not saying that's not how it's meant. I took it as like, that's a hell of a first step and like way to get your foot in the door, buddy, because I just wasn't expecting him to be so straightforward. And I did know that the overall storyline of the show is that it does take quite a while for them to get together. So I was kind of racking my brain going like, well, she's not drunk, so it's not it's not like she's going to just forget about it. Like I couldn't quite remember how it got walked back like that but it was just because he was kind of wishy-washy he was and then some other guy yeah. paulo the soccer player or whomever comes in and she's off with somebody else right and and he missed his window right like to go back to how i met your mother the the window is open yeah um but yeah he missed it he missed his short little window and then he's kicking himself because he knows he did like this is you know throughout that first season and we also find out then later in that first season that rachel also was like yeah i was kind of wishing he would, but he never did. So I, I just figured he was just dipping his toe in and didn't. So he wasn't interested like that. I totally relate to that. Yeah. And I think I took it probably more like him, like, well, he, he made a move and he put himself out there a little bit. So then maybe then she should meet him halfway. You know, I don't know. That was probably she said, yes, that's the yes that you were looking for. Yeah, she said no. she was interested. Fucking say the next two words. 
So let's go. I guess that's three words. Yeah. But so <laughs> so that's left kind of hanging. And we have, you know, we have our act one. What was the moment where it was like Rachel was sitting in the window, like with the music? It was when it was going out to a commercial and she's just like sitting there in the window of Monica's apartment, staring out at the city with this like emo music playing. Well, that it was, was part, so different than the rest of the That was part episode. of the cinematic language. I think that's telling you that it's all going to be about the two of them because right before that, Ross says something like, even if I were to ask someone out, who would I even ask? And then there's this slow fade and the music comes in and they fade to Rachel. So this is a straight up, you know, Harry and Sally, we're going to be cutting back and forth. We're going to be using those visual devices to sort of always be keeping them on your mind. Yeah. And they, so this wasn't the only romance though, that we got in this episode. And the other romance that we got in the episode is Monica and the uh, Paul, the wine guy, which was really controversial. Like NBC execs did not want this storyline in the show. They thought they that audiences would think that Monica was a slut because she slept with this guy on the first date. And the writers were like, no, this is modern. This is people do this. So they, did retool it to make it seem as though Monica had had long-term feelings for this guy. Like, you've been talking about this guy forever. And so they added those bits in. They did it for a test audience or whatever, and they uh, gave the audience a survey afterwards. And results came back that absolutely Monica was not a slutty woman, and they loved that part. And so it stayed in. The story is basically borrowed from Some Like It Hot. Tony Curtis's character in that movie, when he's in disguise, part of his ploy is he tells Marilyn Monroe, oh, he doesn't he doesn't talk about erectile dysfunction per se, but he says, women just leave me cold. You know, there's nothing that can be done. I've kissed a hundred women and I just have no reaction. And so she's, you know, she takes it as a challenge. And uh, that's this guy's ploy. I saw right through it a mile away. That's I I had A forgotten and B did not see through it. And then I was laughing so I was laughing when Joey later on was like, How did you not know that was a lie? Erectile <laughs> dysfunction is not a date one conversation. It's maybe like No, but neither was time. him going on and on and on and on and on about his wife the whole date. I was like, whoa, what yeah, a crappy date. There was just something he was being so unnecessarily forthright about it. And again, I flashed back to some like it hot. And yeah, that idea of, you know, oh, if only oh, there was a woman that could get me to have a reaction, but sadly, I just can't do it. <laughs> so moving on to the office. Here we go, Jim and Pam. One of the things I found so striking about this from the beginning was how much the camera crew that is, you know, the fictional camera crew that's filming the, you know, this, you know, documentary of these office people was very aware of the sort of burgeoning relationship between Jim and Pam, even if they weren't really aware of it yet. I mean, like there's, you get some looks here and there where Jim, you know, obviously Jim knows within himself that he likes her, but Pam isn't really kind of owning up to that at all. She's still denying it to herself. But it's interesting because you already have them in that first episode in their little sit down interviews with producers of that show within the show. They're answering questions that are very pointedly asking them about the conversations that they're having with one another. Yeah, this is a whole different angle 
because Jim and Pam, this is just going to constantly develop in little dribs and drabs throughout every single episode. And so there really aren't, in trying to track their story, it's very realistic in that way, but also kind of hard to put your finger on narratively because it's just this, this slowly inching towards their, uh, their getting together. And in this very first episode, you start to wonder if there's even going to be anything about that. And then Jim's doing one of his talking heads and he says, well, you know, I know a lot of pointless things from this job. I know how many pieces of paper go in a ream. I know how many reams are in a pallet. I know what kind of yogurt Pam likes. And he just sort of throws that in there. Right. But, uh, and then Pam's like, he said mixed berry. Aw, you know, and you see that happen in her little one-on-one as well. So before we get to the two of them, let's just real quickly talk about The Office. We covered it before with the Andy's play episode, but that was deep into the series. So we're going back to episode number one now. So we're really experiencing the remake of the British show with Ricky Gervais. Right. And And this is near like a near carbon copy. They just did a few things to Americanize it. But other than that, I mean, it's almost word for word. Right. Who were, was there a Jim and Pam? Absolutely. Uh, So Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant are credited writers on this episode you see at the start. And I don't think it's because they took pen to paper. I think it's because exactly like you said, Greg Daniels, the producer of the American office, just retooled what they had for this first set of episodes. Yeah. Every story beats, every major character has an analog on that show. Instead of Dwight, you have Gareth. Instead of Jim, you have Tim. Instead of Pam, you have Dawn. And it's exactly the same. But what was so striking to me was not that the story was the same, because I knew that. It was that the style of the show and certain aspects of the production were very different than the American office that we're used to, particularly the sound design. I don't know if you noticed it, but there's this sort of oppressive hum of the office and this constant phones ringing and all of these the fluorescent lights buzzing you yeah. can you can hear it it feels like an office it feels grimier yes. uh and beiger than anything else yes the ricky gervais series was very much a feel bad comedy it was all about the cringe it was all about how hellish it would be to have that kind of job and so at the beginning that's what the american office was Two. Now, I remember from the Office Ladies podcast that Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey do, them talking about how the difference from the start was that Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant said, and I can't speak to if this if this is true or not, that in Britain, you could be completely incompetent and still have your job. But in America, it doesn't work like that. You would eventually lose your job if you were that dumb. And so there needed to be some spark of competence to that central Michael Scott 
character. Right. And isn't it, and I read the same thing, and isn't it that he was a good salesman, not necessarily that he's a good manager. And then, but he does quote his like accomplishment in one of his little conversations with the camera where he says, you know, something, something, you know, third highest or 17% increase in some, in sales, da, 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 you know, over the last quarter, he has some statistic as to why he is the world's best boss and, yeah, and good well, the joke manager. with the world's best boss thing was that it was a mug that he bought for himself right but he's saying he bought it for himself because yeah. he did yeah. this thing he's good at sales they show in uh subsequent early episodes that he does have a knack for connecting with people as a salesman and yeah that was the germ of this difference that would eventually become a total night and day contrast where the american office has so much heart and it goes for the humor of eccentricity instead of the humor of meanness which is is really the sort of core of the british show yeah and just in com- in contrasting this episode 1 with andy's play which is from like what season 7 or something the it's very clear that none of these people except for maybe jim and pam want to hang out with each other outside of work they talk about oh yeah people are going out it's you know friday they're going to go out for drinks or whatever no one else is talking about that except for jim and pam yeah. and it it seems like it might even be sort of a ruse for like Jim to kind of encourage Pam to come out with the gang, even though there's no gang really going. I mean, I think to me, the the fun stuff in the in these first this first season, because I was a fan of the first season of The Office, I sort of fell off later on. But I to me, what I loved about this wasn't the, you know, Pam and Jim thing. I mean, it was a little bit that, but it was the Dwight and Jim, Dwight and Jim and the antics between the two of them were what kept me interested. And funnily enough, that's also what was bonding Jim and Pam, because Pam thought Jim was so funny for all these things. And he was doing a lot of it because she thought it was funny. And so he's trying to, you know, impress her and show her show off to her with his humor. Yeah, our first taste of them is talking to each other at reception. Like you said, they're talking about, oh, are you going to this thing? I heard people are going out or whatever. Better than Angela's cat party, which apparently people were also going to or were invited to. But so this is an interesting difference, right? Because Pam is not like Rachel and Diane. Yeah, we don't have a breakup. There's no breakup. No. In this case, Pam is still with her Baxter. Her Baxter is Roy, the shitty fiance that she's been engaged to for like three years. I will say I have certain sort of relationship anti-role models, both in real life and fictional characters, and Roy is one of them. Because I definitely have a side of me that doesn't want to go hang out with people's friends and doesn't want to you know, expend the energy to do stuff. And I just think about how guys like this come across and I'm like, yeah, you don't want to be that guy. And that's what, what Roy is. You get his whole story when he comes in to sort of say, Hey, are you ready? You know, he's her ride home. And she's like, Oh, some people are going out. Do you want to do that? No. And then Jim tries to engage with him. Hey, what's going on, man? Doesn't want to talk to him. And you get the impression that, yeah, he was at some point, he was a flirty, happy guy, uh, you know, putting in some kind of effort because Pam is hot. 
And over the course of time, he stopped. And now he's just a dick. Yeah. And we don't, he, he's a very one-dimensional character at this point. And, and it's on purpose, right? He's, you know, like you were saying with the notebook and all these other movies, he's the guy that we're meant to dislike. Um, I think much later on, we do get a little bit of, you know, he shows his softer side when he, you know, when, when it's sort of clear that Pam is going to leave him and that is going to end and that she's had this thing for Jim for some time. Not that he gets a full, like, no, he also shows his violence. Yeah. Side he's later not, he's show. not, but you do see that he, it, like, he's hurting and that he's known for a long time and can tell. Look, any guy that walked in on the way Jim is leaning over this woman's desk and is so engaged in everything she's doing knows knows right away what's going on and he's he's not having any of it um so again you know we do know later on that he's not the greatest guy but also maybe he can be forgiven to be like no you're not hanging out with this dude <laughs> but it's not his apathy starts long before that he's just totally disengaged yes and what makes their relationship interesting to me is that i think it makes me think about how adulthood just sort of whittles down your options of who you spend your time with, right? Their whole connection is that they're surrounded by schmucks, right? Their boss is an idiot. Everyone around them, the nicest thing you could say about some of them is they're just not their peers. They're just older or whatever. And some of them are total lunatics. So they sort of commiserate with each other. And you see how, yeah, you know, they're, they're young, right? You get the impression this is probably their first job. And in high school and college, you're surrounded by people your own age and people who you've chosen to be friends with. And depending on what kind of job you go into, all of a sudden you find yourself reporting somewhere where there's maybe, you know, 15 or 20 people you interact with on a daily basis. Ten of them are, you know... 50 years old or older and married. And then this one's a weirdo and that one. And so, yeah, it's like, there's not even necessarily anything so special about them, but their circumstances put them in this situation where it's like, I guess uh, I'm going to become obsessed with you. Well, they just, they don't have a lot of other options. And also I think it it's speaking to that sort of small town feel. I mean, Scranton's not a tiny town, but it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a suburban It's a non-town. I feel like it's right? chosen because there's nothing special about it. Right. It's far enough away from a big city that, you know, it has its own little ecosystem. And yeah, if you're the person, you know, who, grew up there and went to high school there and decided not to go to college or take a few classes in art at the community college, like Pam mentions that she's interested in and, you know, get your, you know, certificate in sales or whatever it is that you're going to do. Like, this is it. And and I sort of, I remember that kind of happening. There were a bunch of us who left my hometown, went away to college, and we would come back for you know, vacations uh, from school and the, the people who were there that we had gone to high school with that had been our peers not so long ago were now the, they like seemed different because they were working and doing these things. And yeah, they like their, their, their friend group 
was no longer just all our age. They had these like wide ranging peer groups because they were, they were hanging out with uh, people that they worked with. And yeah, there's like, there's this sort of thing when you're young where you look at these people who are, you know, oh, what did you do with your life? Did you get the big job? No, did you do that? You're just okay with this. You just have these kids and you you have this like young person's judgment of that. And we can see that in Jim and Pam, absolutely. They want to talk to one another. They want to make fun of Dwight. They, you know, they, they want to do those things and have this sort of judgment for all the other people in the office. But then as the time goes on, they become those people. They don't want to leave Scranton. They want to have their kids there. They actually wind up liking, well, at least Jim kind of winds up liking the work, you know? So it's like they turn into very naturally, as we all do, the thing that we sort of have this ire for when we're younger. Like, I'm not going to be like that guy. Okay. What they have in common is... A, they don't have the weirdness and the bizarre inflated sense of importance of the office that the other characters like Michael and Dwight do. They don't take that kind of stuff too seriously. And their sense of humor, like that's that's the thing from the start. And that's what makes this series, I think, and this relationship more believable to me than the others is that... The writers are just better at it, at at coming up with funny stuff for them to do. So you just believe it when they bond over the way they react to things or the pranks that they pull on Dwight or or whatever it is. Uh, I feel like the writing is just so strong of of how they make each other laugh and everything that it feels organic and you go along with it. Well, and I think it's more than the writing because a lot of what we see in terms of Jim and Pam's relationship building isn't even dialogue or bits. It's just a look. Like yeah. they're purposefully placed in the office so that Jim can look up from his desk and Pam can look up from hers and they can make eye contact. And oftentimes other people are doing the talking or the acting and the silly stuff is happening and and he's just looking up and giving her a look or she's looking up and like you know yeah, making a face reacting to it and you know jim of course famously likes to look at the camera also and give those reactions but yeah they're the people that they can rely on to go i'm not crazy right it's weird that he just said that right you know in, in these wacky uh conference room scenes so the story of the episode is what it is. There's rumblings of the branch being shut down. I kind of feel like the storylines aren't that relevant to the romance, so I don't no. think we need to get into them too deeply. No, but there were a couple things just to I was surprised at. Steve Carell at some point in the series got hair. Because he, they had his hair styled in such a way that it was really highlighting kind of like a receding hairline balding, bald spot. And I don't know if it's just styling or what it is, but I was like, huh. And what I noticed, the, you know, Dwight Schrute sort of, those like weird bangs that he had, it was a little more tousled than it was in later episodes. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, still trying to to find the way there. But Pam looks exactly like Pam. Yeah. So if you're watching this for the first time, you're going to get hints of this as something to keep an eye on, but they are patient in sort of doling out this story. I think that that is really smart though. And I, and I like this 
this way. And it could just be like our age, right? Like the uh, Cheers was 82, uh, Friends was 94, this is 05. And so, you know, Pam and Jim are kind of our age. And so that reality of what it feels like to have this sort of crush and, you know, will they or won't they kind of, you know, I don't want to be too forward. Maybe let's just be friends, but also I like you kind of thing. I think is the way that they do it in that it's more, more real. They're not trying to tip over the apple cart at work, you know, and, and make a big dramatic thing happen right away. They're not, they're not trying to do that. And it's not starting from a place of drama either in terms of a breakup. It's just sort of, oh, these people are in this kind of funny little situation. Let's see where that goes. Yeah. It's kind of a reaction to those other things, because especially when you're talking about the original series, Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant didn't want to do a standard will-they-won't-they rom-com, right? This is being born out of the Christopher Guest movies, the rise in found footage movies. They were doing a different thing. And so, yeah, I think they did want it to have a real heart. And I think that was another thing in the adaptation for the states that they were like, yeah, double down on that, you know, the importance of that relationship. But yeah, they didn't want it to be another Sam and Diane and Ross and Rachel. Well, and I think to what we were speaking about before, about the way that these ensemble shows are able to have many different storylines that they're able to follow so that the longer romance arc can be a, a through line. It's not clear in this, in the office, that that is going to be a big through line. It looks like there's some other things that are going to be more prominent. And it only takes shape later on. And they follow a similar pattern in that, like you were saying about the X-Files, some of the episodes are really heavy into, you know, Jim and Pam and the the angst that is, you know, a, a longing lover, you know, or someone that you're longing for or whatever. But a lot of the episodes are just the normal office yeah, so, and so really, yes. in these early years, I don't think there are those kind of episodes because she's engaged and it's realistic in that way. There isn't, you know, something where they have, you know, dramatic moments where they come out like that happens eventually, but it takes years. Right. Okay, moving on to New Girl. New Girl, the pilot. We've moved forward in time now from 05. Now we're in 2011. Man, I... Watching this just made me want to go back and watch the entire series again. It is wild to me. And and I mean, the same can be said for the other shows that we've watched too. But this one just, New Girl really struck me. These people are freaking funny in the pilot. Like they know their characters. They've got it down. Like they've already got their sort of bantery, you know, it seems like they've been working together for years already. It yeah. just is so, it was really good. I three quarters agree with you. I think the performers are all amazing. It's a great, great cast. And the writing is pretty funny too. I don't think they've totally nailed down the characters yet, but only in that sense of they're just not lived in yet, 
And what makes New Girl so good is that at this point, we're way beyond the traditional tropey archetypes and the characters are very real. And even though they're eccentric and odd, they're unique and they're sort of organic. And that could only happen by way of them sort of discovering over time. So I think it's inevitable that for me anyway, when I look back on this first episode, the way Schmidt's acting especially is kind of like, all right, like we're going to refine that a little bit. But absolutely, New Girl is a great show. We both love it. I would say it's interesting to think back on when it first came out and it's much maligned advertising campaign. Do you remember this? She was adorkable. Oh my gosh, that's right. Oh wow. Well, because it was um Glee was its lead in. And the whole thing about that was like the jocks versus like the dorks, right? And you getting the slushy in the face. And so that was their whole campaign. So I could see now we're moving into more of like a hipstery kind of out of high school nerdy thing. Oh, that's right. There were billboards all over the city with Zoe Deschanel's face on it, and it said, she's adorkable. And every Pitchfork AV Club article was rolling its eyes at this concept. It was just a little too much. And it was just, you know, you use the word hipster. I think you hit the nail on the head. Her whole persona, Zoe Deschanel at this point had been in a handful of movies. She was, you know, she she's not Julia Roberts. She's not an A-list personality, but she was but well at this point had like a cult following, right? And absolutely, I mean, as does almost famous. Oh, that's and, right. I forgot she was in that and five hundred days of summer. Yeah. She was a uh, she was an indie it girl. That's the best way to put it, I think. That stereotype of the manic pixie dream girl, I think, would get kind of lobbed at her. Yeah. I think she was a little polarizing, and that advertising campaign didn't do her any favors. Well, it worked, though, because Glee was this huge show, and the new girl premiere beat the ratings for Glee that night. Sure. It did well, and it's really good, and it continued to do well. What I would say is I think they wisely and swiftly pivoted from this is a show about a girl and her roommates to this is a show about roommates, and this is going to be another ensemble-based comedy, and all four of these characters are going to win us over. Yeah, and I don't I think I think it was more just that the marketing maybe pivoted because the concept of that show that it's about all of them is in that pilot. It doesn't seem to me to be a pivot that later on it's more about the the ensemble because it feels ensemble already. So, yeah, talking about Zoe Deschanel's character, Jess, who's, uh, it's, it's another breakup. She walked in on her boyfriend in coitus because she was trying to do some sexy thing. And right. So she had been out of town. She comes back early and, um, she's planned to give him his fantasy of like, she comes, you know, she comes home and she's like cosplaying as this hooker or whatever, or a stripper or something. And she doesn't have anything on under her trench coat. So she's going to show up and surprise him at their house. Yeah. And when she gets there and starts doing a silly little dance and very awkward, cause like that's, that's the crux of her character is that she's this sort of naive, 
20-something teacher who just is so earnest and is like, oh, and also kind of nerdy. So she's doing this little dance and like, oh, yeah, who's who's that girl? It's Jess. And she sings this little ditty that's like in her head, like, oh, yeah, I'm so good looking. Look at me. And she's almost doing like the weird Elaine dancing from Seinfeld. Yeah, that's what I want to talk about with her, because it seems like the key thing we get from this opening scene is that she's awkward about sex. You know, that's that's like a big thing in this whole episode is that even though she's very attractive, when she tries to be sexy, it's weird and goofy. And it's an interesting I don't know. It's an interesting angle. You know, I feel like Tina Fey's character on 30 Rock was another version of that. It's something that we're starting to get in these, in these 2010 shows is just because I'm an attractive woman doesn't mean I necessarily am seductive and sensual. I can be weird and goofy and awkward just as much as the next guy. Well, and I think it's sort of a pushback on that idea that the only way to be sexy is like, come here, big boy. Don't you want to take my trench coat off? Like, There are other ways to be sexy, and she is sort of embodying the fact that I don't feel comfortable doing the, come on, big boy, unless I'm kind of making a joke out of it because I think it's weird. So I wouldn't say that she's uncomfortable with sex as much as I would say she's sort of uncomfortable with this idea of female sensuality that is male-centered because like, I feel sexy as a woman when I do certain things that would not be at all sexy to a guy in, you know, the the broader sense of like the universe of men. But that's what makes me feel good. And so she's kind of embodying that in like, oh, yeah, hey, baby, I'm doing the thing you want me to. Oh, yeah. And I sing a little song, too. Woo. Yeah. And she has all these silly, oh, I'm going to invent a alias for myself and i'm gonna be nanny two boobs or something just like (laughs) tiger boobs (laughs) yeah just very silly and that's all i'm saying is that they get a lot of humor out of her sort of trying and failing to yeah like you said fit into this sort of traditional sensuality role and then after that all happens she's sort of forced into the orbit of these guys because she needs a place to live They're looking for a roommate, and you have the premise of the show. She's interviewed by them. It's a roommate interview, exactly. We only get this story of her being awkward and like coming home early and finding her boyfriend this way because she's telling them, we see it in flashbacks, she's telling Schmidt and Nick and Coach, the other three main characters, in, you know, in this roommate interview. And it's interesting because like the guys, so we pick up, we're already kind of in the middle of this interview and the guys don't really seem to have any more questions. They're just kind of like, so what does it mean if you're sad? And she's like, well, you know, I'll be watching a lot of Dirty Dancing. You know, they just, they don't even really know what they're getting into. Right. Well, and they have to decide for themselves whether or not they're going to even accept her as a roommate. And this is what I mean about 
New Girl being just past those old timey, well, you got to have a smart one and a stupid one. You got to have a messy guy and a clean guy. It's not like that. Like they're all sort of struggling to, I don't know, acclimate themselves to her and to sort of figure out where they stand. Nick's pros and cons about living with women is very funny. Uh, The one thing he says is they're very good at folding. You know, he's just, he's got good delivery on stuff like that. And so, yeah, we're slowly meeting these three guys. Schmidt's got his douchebag jar because he's always saying douchey things. And so that sort of gives you the story on him. Yeah. And and I'd forgotten that they established that right from the beginning as the, the thing and the way that, you know, by the end of the episode, you know that Jess is going to fit in with them is that he says something douchey to her. And she's like, oh, that's so sweet jar. And so yeah. she, you know, she's now fitting in with the gang. And Nick is sort of another Ross. He's in sad sack mode because he's been broken up with by Mary Elizabeth Ellis, I believe. I, from, from Always Sunny. Yeah. I was shocked when she popped up. I was like, oh my gosh, they actually had her in the first episode and then brought her back later on. Way to go. I mean, she's a great actress. Yeah. So he's completely in mourning for that. He's upset that they broke up. He can't resist calling her all that stuff. He's sort of comically, you know, crying and wailing all the time. But beyond that, again, he's very funny, but you don't get clear character tropes with him. You're sort of left to, you know, get to know him as the show progresses. Right. We don't have any of the like establishing of him being sort of emotionally, you know, impaired <laughs> in terms of like not being able to show his emotions or or be active except for when he has the conversation with Caroline towards the end of the episode, his ex-girlfriend and she says you know, are we going to, he's like, why did you break up with me? And she's like, are we going to do this now? And he's like, yeah. And, and she said, honestly, I didn't know you cared about me until we broke up. And so we get a little glimpse, but not through anything he does, just through something that his ex-girlfriend says. And what I thought was really telling is the next moment after that conversation, he runs away with the rest of the guys to go make sure Jess isn't alone. And so it's like they're setting up this moment of him being a different person with Jess from the very beginning, even though they didn't know it. In fact, the writers for this show purposefully kept Jess and Nick away from each other in scenes because Zoe Deschanel and uh, Jake Johnson had too much chemistry and they didn't want that to be the focus of the show. Yeah. So that is a fundamental difference between this and all of these other ones. In some form, those romances were foundational to those other shows from the beginning. And this was kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning. I think this was meant to be one of those pure, we got some single people on the town and we're going to go along with their lives and meet their various romantic partners. And we're not doing any inbreeding, you know, we're going to have everyone have their (laughs) own separate things. And yeah, at the end of the day, you know, people just can't resist it, I think. Well, and you just... 
Jake Johnson as an actor, in every, anything you see him in, he has that thing of the little sparkle in the eye and the little like, you know, he's a very curmudgeonly, he usually plays these sort of curmudgeonly kind of guys, but he has that twinkle, right? And in this in this episode, that twinkle appears over and over again when he's interacting with Jess. And it's like he can't help but sort of smirk a little and it's not in a mean way he is he's a little dazzled by her like he's the one who says or did you just make up a theme song for yourself and and that you know yes yes she did zoe deschanel wrote the theme song and sings it for this show and also not during the title sequence is just sort of bopping around and is like telling her story and is like oh who's that girl it's jess like that's gonna be the dynamic for a lot of the humor in this show is jess doing something and the others being incredulous about it and to be fair they all get to do that from time to time right incredulous Um, but nick has the thing of where he you can tell he's he sort of finds it cute Yeah, it's interesting how, from a story point of view, this does follow some of the same beats, and yet some of the questions that we would ask just sort of don't apply, because this is not meant to be the first chapter in a romance. Right. So we're really just meeting them and... You know, just sort of staying tuned to see what happens. Yeah. And you, and you do see, like I said, you see a little bit of it in that, you know, Nick is not wanting to like be there and doesn't, didn't even really want her to live with them and just kept being like, no, this isn't a good idea. You know, girls are like this and whatever. But then is the one who runs away from the party that they'd been trying to get into where his ex-girlfriend is that he wants to be with still. He's the first one that turns around and runs away to go make sure that Jess doesn't get stood up or doesn't have to be alone after being stood up by this guy. And that's the other thing. When she meets that guy, Pete, or whatever his name is, that asks her out on the date and then never shows up. It's at the bar where Nick works. So they're at the bar because Jess has been on the couch crying and watching um, Dirty Dirty Dancing. And Coach is like, stop it. Stop crying. Yeah, that scene is really good. Uh, They're all comforting her in their various ways. Coach is doing his tough love thing. But then Schmidt starts talking to her about you need a rebound. And Zoe Deschanel's delivery when she kind of looks up at him with the wet eyes and goes like a rebound like like a little kid crying but starting to calm down it's very cute and funny and yeah they've kind of jazzed her up so she does go after this sort of douchey guy that they meet in the bar and she's excited about it yeah she's happy that she you know she's like oh this is nice i got my mojo back you know this this is so good But prior to having that conversation with that guy, Pete, she has moved away from the booth and where they were all sitting and has been trying to work the room and has been unsuccessful. So she comes and sits at the bar to talk to Nick. And they're having one of those close leaning over the counter conversations like Pam and Jim. And it's 
and you watch, if you watch Nick's face when that guy Pete comes over and Jess's attention turns to him, he has a little bit of a look like, oh, shucks. You know, like even though they didn't mean for it to happen, even though they were trying to keep them apart, that you can't deny that chemistry between the two actors. It's sometimes it's really, ju- it's just there. And I, it's, it's so nice to watch it kind of organically happen. So there were little inklings, little, sure. little bits of, and, and pieces where because of, Jess being the heart, it like if you were gonna, you know, assign the tropes to the people in, in this show, Jess in this one is the heart. And because she is all heart and nothing but heart, it'll it softens that weird curmudgeoniness that Nick has yeah. over time. And and it just it makes perfect sense. I remember being s- several seasons into that this being like, when are they gonna do like when are they just gonna get together? You know, and and the writers were still fighting it. But so this guy stands her up because she's too adorable, right? He's not buying what she's selling. She's too clingy. She is texting with him in between him asking her out for a date at the bar. And then the next night when they were going to go out, they've been texting back and forth. Right. And he's like, yeah, that's too much. too much. She's too much. And goes to this other party that's going to have all these models. Right. But they run into our main characters sort of by chance on the street and tell them like, oh, oh, Jess, I didn't, I'm, I didn't meet her. And so, yeah, Nick and the rest of them are like, wait, you're saying that you just left her to sit at the bar like a schmuck and they hightail it over there to, to, you know, sort of salvage the situation. Now I'll say as much as the show is really good from the start, this ending of the guys have to come and do this sort of like apology or cheer up by way of public embarrassment it was a pretty good version of it. But well, they weren't apologizing. They no, in were, that case, they're yeah. not apologizing. But I feel like that's the trope, is going to that crowded public place and making a fool of yourself so that the girl sort of giggles and you, you kind of save the day. I feel like the show got past those cliches pretty fast and so i'm just saying that this particular story when they sing in the restaurant and then they get thrown out and it's all just to make jess laugh because you know that she has to leave the table or whatever it's a little cheesy i guess is what i'm saying cheesy and uh you know that's fine but i guess what i'm saying is that uh the show went from good to great i think over the course of time well and there's also cc and schmidt that yeah. is established right from here as well. Like their dynamic is is he's immediately in love with her and she's immediately like, leave me the hell alone. That, that which one I, maintains that for a long time. I think that one was truly not intended or even considered from the start. I mean, that's purely my conjecture. I don't know what the I wouldn't be surprised saying. if it wasn't considered either. But also it's, you know, those dynamics, the seed of what they can grow into, you can see it right then and there. And whether it came organically because of the, you know, 
the natural chemistry between the actors or over time they're like, oh, let's instead of always having them date other people, let's do something different and have them date, you know, date each other, date inbreeding, as you said, <laughs> I would call it incestual. But yeah. Well, when you think about it, this almost tracks with Monica and Chandler. Right. Cece and Schmidt are like Monica and Monica and Chandler. It's like, okay, we need to sort of press pause on this main will they won't they thing because we've just kind of run that into the ground. Let's pivot and give you these other two that you never even thought of. Let's stick them together and see what happens. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? So, yeah, the idea of these will they won't they relationships, you know, when we try to break down the tropes at the end of the episode, this is such an overarching, gigantic thing that really it isn't a trope. It's just the sort of narrative concept. Right. But know? there are pieces of it that we could kind of lock into. Exactly. There are tropes within it. Like starting shows with breakups. Yeah. It's starting because they've had a breakup. Uh, or one of them has had a breakup or both of them have had a breakup. And so they're in, they're coming together in this sort of vulnerable moment and there is a spark. Well, that's what I would say is the other trope or the other narrative element of this is that we leave them with some sense of intrigue for the future. You know, it's, it's definitely there. In Ross and Rachel, even though, you know, I guess Rachel is disappointed by his follow through, but it's there in Friends, it's there in Cheers. In the office, you absolutely get it, like we said, in those little tastes where we see that they're paying attention to each other. And- yeah. And at that part when Jim and Pam, it, it seems like she's going to try and go and convince. Uh, Roy that she's you know she'll just she'll get a different ride home and then he honks from the parking lot and she's like oh no gotta go okay that's Roy and then just leaves so like it's almost like we have a, a, a will they moment in the first episode yeah if this is act one we have in most cases these feelings are unspoken that's not completely true in friends but Looking forward to uh, episode 20, when we check back in with these stories, what are we going to be looking for in act two? It's going to be some sort of something's coming out in the open, right? Something's coming out in the open, or there is some sort of like obstacle that's come up in the way even further, right? So I think we've kind of established that this act two that we're talking about for some of these stories is going to be a lot further along down the road than say friends and cheers, right? Friends and cheers, they're looking to have that act two within season one or within the first 10 episodes of season one. Like this is a major driver of the story and, and it was established as such. Whereas in the later two shows off the office and new girl, they are, are really trying to kind of drag, not even drag it out, but put that off and not let these shows, the later shows become exact copies of the way that these will they won't they stories played out in earlier times. Yeah, even though it's debatable whether they succeed in avoiding those uh, cliches. But yeah, well, well get and to that's that. when they because when you look at the trajectory of the relationship, it oftentimes even in real life is will they 
ooh, maybe they will. So the next next act will likely be some type of kiss or almost kiss, mm-hmm. um, a, a moment where some some emotion, if we're not yet to the point where uh, we're going to kiss because of whatever um, yeah. obstacles might be in the way, like it, it, the act two for some of these folks could just be a moment of expression of feeling. Yeah, I think it's a revelation of some kind, some kind of awareness where the relationship is being recontextualized. If this is an unrequited thing where one person was blissfully unaware, maybe they're becoming aware. If it's something that was mutual, but it was completely unspoken, now maybe it's being spoken. But we'll figure that out when we get to episode number 20. What are we talking about next week? Next week, we're handling the trope of let's start a business. We're going to watch... Leave it to Beaver, season four, episode 36, Beaver Goes Into Business. We're going to watch The Patty Duke Show, season one, episode 18, The Tycoons. If you're looking for it on streaming services, sometimes it's listed as um, season one, episode 34. Then we're going to fast forward in time to Saved by the Bell, season four, episode three, Screech's Spaghetti Sauce. That one also, depending on the streaming service, sometimes season four is season five. And finally, iCarly. Season four, episode four, I Sell Penny Teas. We will make a fortune on that podcast, I declare. All right, so that'll be next time. And until then, we will declare this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. 